This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 2nd of September 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kiev, 9am here in London and 4am in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme... And while the whole world watched this with bated breath, it is indeed, indeed a sunshine moment for India. We're joined by Maya Sharma, a Bengaluru-based journalist, to discuss India's solar space launch this morning. Then... The majority of those who have chosen a work bike have started to cycle more and use their cars less. Our Helsinki correspondent Petri Batsov explains why Finland's benefit bike scheme has been so successful. And weaving it all together, Charles Hecker joins us in the studio to have a look through the global papers. First, though, here's the news. The Biden administration will send controversial armour-piercing munitions containing depleted uranium to Ukraine for the first time, according to a document seen by Reuters. The rounds, which could help destroy Russian tanks, are part of a new military aid package set to be unveiled in the next week that will be worth between 240 million and 375 million US dollars. North Korea fired several cruise missiles towards the Yellow Sea in the early hours of this morning, according to the South Korean military. This was the latest in a series of missile tests and military exercises conducted by Pyongyang in recent weeks, including a failed spy satellite launch late last month. And a former member of Singapore's ruling party scored a landslide victory today to become the city-state's president in an election seen as a barometer of public sentiment amid economic challenges and high-profile scandals. Analysts said the win for the candidate seen as closest to the establishment is a sign that Singaporeans generally still trust the ruling People's Action Party. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. Charles, good morning to you. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, Now, I have to know, are you the only person on the planet that wasn't affected by this horrible crisis in the skies over the last few days? My biggest travel drama recently was was the train strike recently. I have skipped that bullet. Well, of course, there's a train strike in London, in Britain, again today. Um, But can I just tell you my travel woes, please? Please do. Trying to get back. I was in Annecy. It was a 20-minute drive to Geneva Airport, 40-minute drive, whatever it was. Get on a flight, come back to London, lots of things to do. Uh, Still waiting at Geneva Airport four hours after the flight should have gone when they tell us it's not going. Night in a hotel, managed to grab the last three tickets on Eurostar. All in all, the, the journey took us 27 hours. What, what a total nightmare. I, you know, the stories like this abound. Everyone seems to have been touched by this air traffic control meltdown. Um, there may be worse places to be stuck than Geneva, but being stuck is being stuck and it's not pleasant wherever you are. It really isn't. And here's the thing, right? We, can, we can't fly across a country, but we can go to the moon or indeed even head for the sun. And that's where the space race is accelerating in India because after 
beating Russia to become the first country to safely land a craft on the moon's South Pole region last week, India is now on its way to the sun. So this morning, the Indian Space Research Organization launched the Aditya uh, L1 solar mission uh, into space. And the aim is to study the sun and its effect on space weather. So I'm joined down the line by Maya Sharma, who's a journalist based in Bengaluru, where the Indian space agency, ISRO, has its headquarters. Maya, many thanks for making the time to come and talk to us about this exciting new development. The launch took place this morning. Can you tell us how it unfolded? Well, of course, a huge amount of excitement. India's really, really thinking about celestial bodies these days after the successful landing on the moon and now heading towards the sun. And hopefully this journey will be better than the one you had to make because of air traffic control (laughs) difficulties. This launch was pretty safe. It was pretty good. And it is going to be a long journey, though. It's going to take about four months for Aditya to reach its final destination, one and a half million kilometers away from the Earth. That is still only 1% of the distance to the sun because for obvious reasons, it's not really heading any closer. But it will take four and a half months to reach there. The launch was perfect. ISRO is very happy. Space Science is watching. Very happy. And the Indian public who have stayed glued to the national broadcaster, to YouTube and to social media, they're all very, very happy indeed. It took off at about 11.50 local time. An hour later, it was injected into the intermediate orbit around Earth. And so far, so good. Early days yet, but yes, everybody's happy right now. And so, Maya, what, what actually is the purpose of it? What's it going to study and what will we learn from, from this launch, from, from this mission? Well, of course, uh, Chandrayaan on the moon has been picking up lots of information about that. The sun, of course, our life giver. As at stationary point is about uh, when it does get into that 1.5 million place away from the Earth, it will in fact be able to view the sun continuously without any eclipses getting in the way and blocking the view. So that itself is a big deal to be able to view the sun continuously. And it will be observing solar activities and the effect of those activities on space weather. It'll be looking at solar storms, solar winds and flares. And why should we bother so far away? Well, it does impact the health of satellites, and also the health of astronauts. So if in some way there's more information gathered about the impact of all this solar activity, we can maybe get our satellites and astronauts out of the way before any damage is done. Basically to learn more about the sun because it is our nearest star and we kind of depend on it quite Mm. a bit. Now you mentioned that the Indian population was absolutely glued to this and people are very happy that it went well. I wonder though if there's any kind of pushback on the enormous sums being spent on the space programme with no immediate benefit to ordinary people. Well yes of course that has always been the question since the start of the Indian space programme decades ago. India's space missions are of course at a fraction of the cost of what it is abroad. For example, the Chandrayaan mission was about $75 million, which is a fraction of what NASA or the European Space Agency would spend. And this one coming into about 400 crores, which may be around $48 million, is still pretty cheap for a space mission. It is a fraction of many big films, both in Hollywood and in Bollywood. And the hope is that it's not really a zero-sum game that development in one area will necessarily negate development in another area. Hopefully there'll be progress in both. ISRO itself and its satellites has been able to contribute to whether it's agriculture, whether it's fishing, whether it's many different ways, education, of course. And the hope is that information, information is power. 
And by learning a little bit more about the sun, maybe we can do something to kind of uh, improve a lot of people back here on Earth. Mm. It is a long, a long shot, yes, but I think the space program does have a lot of support from the people down here on Earth. Maya, thank you very much. And as you say, this is a long journey. It'll be four months till it reaches its, its final destination. So I'm quite sure we'll be checking in with you again over the next few weeks as we follow the journey of this satellite. Um, Charles, space launches are almost always political, aren't they? I mean, there's, there's a, a big political push behind these. And I wonder if we're seeing a new modern space race developing now between India and Russia. Russia, of course, failed space spectacularly with its mission. That's right. Um, Let's hope that there is an international space race, and let's hope that it encompasses all of the the major players in the arena. Uh, Let's hope that this becomes scientific, it becomes apolitical, it becomes peaceful, it becomes something that stimulates a new generation of, of students to become scientists and to engage in space exploration in the way that you know, the first Apollo missions captured uh, the imagination of, of young children who were watching, you know, the first lunar landing. Um, you're absolutely right to point to the contrast between the fantastic success, you know, congratulations and well done to India for now the second successful mission um, in rapid uh, order. Um, NASA released news just the other day that there's a new crater on the moon and the crater was caused by the crash of the Russian landing craft, mm. um, which was sent up at the beginning of August and didn't make it um, and didn't land safely. And, and so you have two studies here in contrast of an economical and successful program and a program in Russia that was done at great expense and ended in disaster. And of course, space travel's now become so ordinary, really, that we're doing space tourism. That's right. There were stories not too long ago about a mother-daughter pair who went up into sort of low Earth orbit, um, almost on you know commercial basis. I think they won the trip in a contest. But you can now pay. You can get on a rocket. Um, you can go up and you can come back safely. Mm. People are looking for more and more exotic destinations, aren't they? And the moon would appear to be one of them. But a place people are still avoiding, because they were told to, is Maui in Hawaii. Uh, and this is a story from the New York Times. That's right. In today's New York Times, we see the headline that says, Tourists were told to avoid Maui. Many workers want them back. And this is a story of what's happened to Hawaii's tourist economy, which, of course, is the backbone of the state's industry and and its lifeblood. What happened was during the Lahaina fire, uh, which was one of the U.S.'s worst natural disasters with a body count um, now well over 100 people, the governor of Hawaii told people to stay away. Initially, this was to prevent any interference in the search and the rescue and the recovery efforts in the wake of the fire. The problem is that tourists took this advice to heart and they have still stayed away from Maui. The governor has retracted or amended his, situ- his, his statement and is urging tourists back. Um, there are parts of Maui that you can't go to, but we have to study our geography a little bit better and understand that there's lots of parts of Maui that we can still visit. Mm. And of course, one of the problems is it's not just the, the sort of major tourism things that you automatically think of, like hotels or perhaps restaurants, but lots of businesses downstream of that that are impacted. So you've got, uh, uh, I mean, laundries, for instance, or, or car hire companies, or indeed uh, electric scooters. I was just looking up, uh, it costs $55 for four hours to hire an electric scooter in Maui, but sadly, nobody's taking it up. Yeah, in fact, you're right. that This is an industry that 
filters all the way down through the state economy. Um, the New York Times tells us that there are literally 4,250 fewer visitors per day. The state's economy is losing $9 million a day. Um, seven of every 10 hotel rooms are empty. And so imagine the people who work in those hotel rooms, the people who feed the tourists, the people who are renting the, the hire scooters to the, the tourists. Um, all of those individuals now are in a state of economic distress. And summer is ending. Tourist season is over. Um, the next big wave of tourists to Hawaii, of course, will come during the U.S. winter. And, and so the governor will be working to get people back to the parts of Maui, and they're considerable, that are still visitable. Mm. Well, of course, e-scooter uh, retailers or hirers uh, in Maui are not the only ones suffering. In Paris, they've just had a major blow because after five years on the streets, the scooters are no more. They've all been chucked off. That's right. A hugely emotive subject discussed in today's Guardian under the headline that says, Rented e-scooters cleared from Paris streets on eve of ban. And so this is something, these are the marmite of the transportation industry. And this is something that you either use and love or you avoid and hate. But in what's interesting, in a public referendum in Paris, and, you know, had a fairly low turnout, but the voters who voted in this referendum, 90% of them voted to have these pests taken off the streets <laughs> of Paris. Forgive me for revealing a personal bias here. Um, but they are all being wiped off the face of the city starting tomorrow. Um, and you know, the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, who's been a transformational force mm. in, in, in the city, has said, look, um, there's plenty of bicycle routes now. Paris has transformed its bicycle infrastructure. Public transportation in Paris is superb. And that the, the lack of these e-scooters shouldn't be an impediment to getting around the city. Now, one thing that really scared me, actually, at the bottom of the article, because I absolutely share your sentiment and my hatred of them, particularly on pavements, going very fast, no warning that they're coming. It says the scooters themselves will be redistributed around other cities. They're returning to Germany or Warsaw. They're being shipped to Lille, to London, to Copenhagen and German cities. And some are going as far away as Tel Aviv. I hope not that many of them are coming to London. <laughs> um, London is already just overwhelmed um, with these, these sort of the equivalent of, of, of sort of pavement mosquitoes. Uh, let, let everyone else in Warsaw and, and Tel Aviv and elsewhere, let them enjoy. Well, let's head to Finland because there's a, a recently introduced benefit bike scheme and it's proven exceptionally popular at encouraging people to ride bikes. And this is ordinary bikes, not horrible e-scooters. Uh, introduced in 2021, tens of thousands of Finns have already signed up for a work bike and the numbers keep growing. So our Helsinki correspondent, Petri Burtsov, has more. So, two ox, take them out. It's early morning in the Hirtoniemi district of Helsinki and Erik Pöntunen prepares to hop on his new electric bike for a nine-kilometer commute. His sleek e-bike, made by the Finnish bicycle brand Helkama, costs well over 3,000 euros. But because of Finland's generous new work bike benefits, Pöntunen will save up to 1,200 euros on the standard retail price. Has it made you um, cycle more than you did previously, would you say? 
Yeah, I used to uh, cycle with like a um, non-electric bike roughly 100 kilometers per month or a little bit more. But now I've been already over 300 almost with this and I have had it a little bit over a month. So it's really extending because it's much easier to go longer distance and I don't need to carry so much with it. According to forecasts, up to 80,000 Finns will have signed up for the bike benefit by the end of the year. This is a staggering number, taking into account the fact that Finland is a country of fast distances and challenging winter conditions. In fact, the number of work bikes will soon surpass the number of company cars. Bentonen tells me that with his new e-bike, he can make it to the office in roughly the same time as with a car. By public transportation, it takes me 50 minutes. It's not really conveniently located. The office, uh, by car, it takes roughly 20 minutes. By a non-electric bike, it took me 35 minutes. But I needed to go to the showers afterwards and I need to carry stuff. With this, it takes 25 minutes and I'm ready to work. So I'm actually going more or less as fast as a car in this distance. The bike benefit has been a resounding success in many ways. Research carried out by Finland's Cycling Federation shows that the majority of those who have chosen a work bike have started to cycle more and use their cars less. It has also led to people acquiring better quality bikes and to service them more, as regular servicing is often part of the deal with the work bikes. Despite them being called work bikes, employees can use them for anything they want, as Pöntönen explains. Do you find yourself using it also in your spare time? Yes, yes. So uh, I play football in, in a field like four kilometers away. So when I go there, I don't actually have the electric, electric assistance on because I want to warm up for the trainings. And, and when I come back, then I, I want to go home after running around. So then I kind of come quite quickly. So it's all these kind of things where you need, for example, buying uh, football shoes. I went from ready four kilometers to one store. Didn't find anything, went to Itakeskus, eight kilometers one way. And then, so basically using a car, just going around fastly because it was so easy and, and convenient to ride, ride around. The bike benefit system has also spawned a slew of companies that serve as intermediaries between employers and bike shops and bike brands. One of them is called Vapaus, whose CEO Tero Era tells me that the work bikes have enormous growth potential. Yeah, it's still a fairly new new market, even though it, it has been growing quite fast. Um, at the moment, about 10% of the employees are using using um, benefit bike, uh, but there's quite a lot of interest for the for the topic. Uh, about 60% of the employees say that they are really interested about about getting a bike, and um, that is about the same same amount of employers uh, say the same. They are really interested to pe- uh, provide employees the benefit. In the Vapaus Snazzy webshop, employees can choose from a wide variety of bikes and a handy calculator tells them how much would be deducted from their salary for a particular model. On top of that, employees can also make their way to the Vapaus office to try out different bikes. For the employees, they can choose pretty freely the bike, bike they want to have. Um, we have basically cooperation in, in place with about 250 bike shops around Finland. So it's in a way national coverage and in a way covering different models really well. 
but about 60% have chosen e-bike already. So it's really in a way uh, making it more easy to get a bit more expensive bike and try out in a way e-bike for the, for the first time. So that's, that has been really popular in the, in the beginning. But there are also different types of gravel bikes, city bikes uh, that people are using. So it's, it's a range of different, different models, of course, and it's increasing all the time. Finland is not alone in incentivizing its citizens to bike more. There are similar tax incentives in place in countries such as the Netherlands, Sweden and Germany. But Finland's is among the most comprehensive and universal. The tax credits are not based on the cycled mileage or what the bike is used for, but are instead available for everyone and for any use of the bike, not just commuting. As more and more people choose bikes instead of cars, it forces cities to improve their cycle paths and of course makes our cities greener as it means less pollution. Not to mention the various health benefits of daily exercise. For Monocle in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. Many thanks to Petri there. Charles, uh, this whole thing about getting people out of their cars and onto their bikes or, or onto public transport only really works if you redesign a city in a way that, that actually makes public transport or, in, or indeed like this bike scheme work properly. I, mean, I was just chatting to our producer, Mariella Bevan. She lives in Oxford uh, and she says, you know, that there's such a push there to get people out of their cars, but the city hasn't developed alternative routes. Public transport has just not kept up with it. It's interesting. I mean, you know, you need a certain level of critical mass, I assume, and that means living in the center of a mega city um, with an efficient metro, buses, trams, trolleys, you name it. Um, There are some exceptions of smaller cities that have managed to wean their residents off of the car. But I think that this is more or less an urban phenomenon. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, the, the underground here in, in Britain is improving. You've got the new Elizabeth line. But I suppose that the, the kind of the, the star in this firmament uh, of public transport has got to be Tokyo Metro, hasn't it? The Tokyo Metro is astonishing. Um, it is absolutely comprehensive. It is, it, its tentacles go everywhere in Tokyo. It's an interesting thing because there are actually two metro systems in Tokyo. One is run by the city and one is a private company. You can switch back and forth between the two almost without noticing that you're doing it. Um, But really, it goes everywhere and it goes on time. (laughs) <laughs> which is which is always the thing. Now, there used to be a big fish market, didn't there, by, a, by, the, by one of the metro stations? That's right. Um, the fish market has moved from its historic locations closer to the center of town. And there was a time when you could walk out of the metro station, walk directly over to the fish market, and it was a massive tourist attraction in Tokyo. Mm, but is anybody eating fish in Japan now? I mean, this is all to do with Fukushima and wastewater. That's right. Well, the Japan Times has something to say about this. And so there's a headline in today's Japan Times that says, China banned seafood from Japan. Some tourists are eating it in Tokyo. And so you're right to mention Fukushima because there has been a release of treated water from the core of the Fukushima nuclear reactor that, of course, um, melted down um, in the wake of the tsunami years ago already. And what happened is China and South Korea and some of Japan's neighbors 
have raised the alarm over this water that's in the ocean and have banned the import of Japanese seafood. Um, It's become a bit of a geopolitical issue because actually most of the countries that are pointing the finger at Japan themselves are releasing um, radioactive water into the seas around their borders at rates that are much higher than the treated water coming coming out of Tokyo. And so you have tourists now, the Japan Times tells us, wandering around Tokyo um, eagerly eating um, Japanese seafood, including raw seafood in the form of, of, of Japan's most famous export, sushi, um, really without that much concern. And, you know, who can blame them? Because if you're avoiding seafood in Japan, you get very hungry very quickly. <laughs> exactly. What else could you eat? <laughs> oh, precisely. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, so I think that, you know, when you're in Japan and when you see the food being prepared, and of course, Japan is one of the most, has the highest hygiene standards in the world. It's a place where you can almost literally eat, eat off the pavement. Um, when you see the food being prepared, um, when you see the care that's taken in, in Japanese restaurants and by Japanese chefs, um, it gives you an enormous level of confidence in the quality of the food. Mm. Now, I know that you know Tokyo well. You've, you've been there many, many times. I never have. And I have to kind of experience Tokyo mostly through movies. And the one that always comes to mind is Lost in Translation. An absolute art form of the Tokyo movie. Um, it's It's a great, you know, you say that there are sort of good New York movies and good London movies. Um, this is a very, very good Tokyo movie and, and made a series of landmarks, including um, the bar at the top of the Park Hyatt, um, that now in itself is a tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are all sorts of wonderful kind of themes that run through it, aren't there? Right. Well, the, you know, the movie itself is, is a tribute to jet lag. Uh, and and wouldn't have happened, you know. Jet lag is is the plot driver essentially in Lost in Translation, and so that brings us to a piece in today's Washington Post, and it's a column written by an author called Carrie Jones, and the headline is "Why I Love Jet Lag," <laughs> and and so what Carrie Jones does is take us through some of the reasons why jet lag is a good thing, and apparently, jet lag in the morning causes you to wake up early. And what Carrie Jones does is is lean right into it. And so you can witness sunrises in Finland. You can explore quiet neighborhoods in Spain. You can have custom-made breakfasts at empty restaurants. Um, If you lean into the kind of jet lag that causes you to wake up early in the morning. And I, and I think that what is so interesting about jet lag in the story is that just, just about everybody has experienced it, you know, in one way or another. There's the jet lag traveling east. There's the jet lag traveling west. I think traveling east is, is the hardest because that's the one where you can't really fall asleep. Traveling west makes you a morning person. There's all of the different pills that people like to talk about for jet lag. And then, you know, finally, you can actually travel 12, 13, 14, even 15 hours without jet lag as long as you're traveling north-south. Mm. It's, it's entirely dependent on which direction you go. I actually have a fail-safe method for it. 
Please tell me. Travel with a flat bed. I mean, just go first class. <laughs> Have a martini. Take an aspirin for the deep vein thrombosis and go to sleep in your lovely snuggly bed. That's a very, very expensive <laughs> recipe. One of these days will do it. But but you're right, because everyone has their uniquely personal approach to all of this. And, and some people, I think, smell lavender salts to help them fall asleep. There's the melatonin. There's all of that. Um, but anyway, what the story in the Washington Post is telling us is if you're experiencing jet lag, roll with it and, and, and make it work for you and get up early or stay up late. Explore. Don't toss and turn in bed wherever you are. Just embrace it. Mm. Well, uh, there's a thing that you can click through on this Washington Post article to another one, which is how to how to survive 12 hours in an airport. Now, admittedly, I only had four in Geneva <laughs> Airport, but I wish that I had read this before because basically she's talking about sort of embrace it, uh, it rather like the jet lag, but but it's nice not to be in a rush and everything. But I mean, for instance, can you believe in Geneva Airport I could only find two working um, charge points? phones and there was queues long queues for them it was extraordinary and you think this is 2023 and switzerland no less where you would think that this is a sort of reasonably technologically advanced place um geneva airport i've I've never been but it's it's supposed to be well known for for another element and that is that you can exit into switzerland from one side of the airport and if you go out the other side of the airport you exit into france absolutely and here listeners i would like to leave you with the top tip if you are hiring a car from geneva airport definitely hire it from the french side because it's much much cheaper georgina's travel tips georgina's travel tips (laughs) Charles, thank you so much for being with me once again. Uh, And that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our producer, Isabella Jewell, our studio engineer and co-producer in London is Mariella Bevan. And, uh, of course, my guest was Charles Hecker. Uh, Monocle on Saturday will return next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Happy travels and thanks for listening.